It's Minnesota Now. I'm Nina Moyni in for Kathy Werzer, an iconic North Shore resort with more than 100 years of history, lost overnight in a fire. It's just hard to kind of fathom that it's not here. We'll talk to former owners for 30 years of the Lutzen Lodge. There are two new groundbreaking treatments of sickle cell. We'll talk to local leaders about its impact on black Minnesotans. And a local author shares his tips about finding purpose later in life. Plus, we talk to a Minnesota transplant about the expectations versus the reality of this warm winter. And Diablo Cody is known for writing films based in Minnesota like Juno and Jennifer's Body. And we'll be talking to her about a new film out Friday. All that and more after the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Former President Donald Trump is blasting a federal appeals court ruling today that the former president is not immune from federal prosecution for actions he took while he was in office. His campaign released a statement accusing President Biden of weaponizing the federal government. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports on today's ruling surrounding allegations that Trump broke laws in his attempt to overturn the results of the 2020 election. They wrote, in this criminal case, former President Trump has become citizen Trump mm. with all the defenses of any other criminal defendant. And they wrote it would be a real paradox if the president, who has a special constitutional duty to ensure laws be executed faithfully, were the sole person capable of defying those laws with impunity. NPR's Kerry Johnson reporting, despite Trump's legal battle in D.C. and other parts of the country, he remains the clear frontrunner for the GOP presidential nomination. Nevada is holding two presidential nominating contests this week. Process is not exactly straightforward. Both Democrats and Republicans vote in the state-run primary today. But the Republican Party also holds a caucus on Thursday, which is where the state GOP will award its delegates. NPR's A. Martinez is meeting voters in Reno. Dawn Hines tutors and mentors kids. She enjoys talking to them about a wide range of topics, but recently Hines was put on the spot when the likely November rematch between Donald Trump and Joe Biden came up. I am not excited about either candidate. It's funny, I asked the kids this question on a presidential level, and they said, who are you going to vote for, Miss Dawn? I really didn't want to tell them that I didn't want to vote for either one of them. Hines stressed she is going to vote because it makes a difference. And that's especially true in a state such as Nevada. Biden narrowly beat Trump here the last time around by less than three points. A. Martinez, NPR News, Reno. Proponents of new investment funds tied to Bitcoin predicted they'd send the price of the world's most popular cryptocurrency higher. But as NPR's David Gura tells us, Bitcoin's trading almost 10 percent lower since those funds debuted last month. Exchange-traded funds, or ETFs, are a $7 trillion industry, a popular way to invest in stocks and commodities. In January, regulators approved almost a dozen that track Bitcoin. But something fundamental hasn't changed about that cryptocurrency. This is an asset that has traded entirely on sentiment. Lee Reiner studies crypto policy at Duke, and he concedes it's still too early to pass judgment on these new funds. Crypto, and Bitcoin in particular, is as much of an ideology as it is an asset class. And the thing about ideologies is that they can last a long time. But Reiner's does wonder how long the market can sustain this many Bitcoin ETFs, and if Bitcoin will become more common in investment portfolios. David Gura, NPR News, New York. From Washington, this is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Indeed, 
Designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. For NPR News in the Twin Cities, I'm Emily Reese. Union teachers with the St. Paul Public Schools will vote next week on whether or not to authorize a strike. Elizabeth Schockman reports. The St. Paul Federation of Educators unanimously approved a strike vote that will take place on February 15th. Three bargaining groups, teachers, educational assistants, and school service professionals will all participate in the vote. Like many teacher labor groups in the state, St. Paul educators have been working without a contract since July of last year. They authorized the strike vote the last time unions in the district negotiated a contract. The union, which teaches more than 30,000 students at the state's second-largest district, last went on strike four years ago. I'm Elizabeth Schockman. An overnight fire has destroyed the historic Lutzen Resort Lodge on the north shore of Lake Superior. The fire was reported just after midnight. Cook County authorities say staff members were on site, but no guests, no injuries were reported. The lodge dates back to 1885 and is among the oldest resorts along the North Shore. Cheersty Vick with Visit Cook County says it's a community gathering place. We all have a fondness for it. I know several people who have gotten married at Lutzen Resort. You know, it's been the kind of place that's Generations of families have come and made memories there. Lutzen Resort is separate from Lutzen Mountains Ski Resort, located across Highway 61. Resort officials say it's a total loss. The state fire marshal's office is investigating. A 23-year-old man died after being shot early this morning outside a gas station in Minneapolis. Police say it happened just after midnight on the 2600 block of West Broadway. Officers responding to reports of a shooting found the man injured in an alley behind the gas station. He died at the scene. Police say it appears there was a verbal argument between at least two people before the gunfire. The victim's name hasn't been released. No arrests in the case at last report. This is NPR News. More now on our top story this afternoon. The North Shore's historic Lutzen Lodge was destroyed by a fire early this morning. The building was engulfed in flames as crews from eight fire departments worked to knock the fire down. Despite their efforts, resort officials say the lodge is a total loss. The state fire marshal's office is investigating, but so far there is no known cause. The lodge has been a Minnesota landmark since 1885. That's when Swedish immigrant Charles Axel Nelson began renting out his homestead to other North Shore pioneers. His grandson, George Nelson Jr., built the legendary ski area that draws so many to Lutzen to this day. The Nelsons passed the lodge to Nancy Burns and Scott Harrison in 1988, and they owned Lutzen Lodge until its sale in 2018. Nancy and Scott join us today to talk about the tremendous legacy and loss of Lutzen Lodge. Nancy and Scott, thank you so much for giving us some of your time this afternoon. You're welcome. Nancy, I'd like to start with you. Uh, I'm so sorry for your loss and for the loss of that entire area. Uh, Can you tell us just what you thought? What was your reaction when you first heard about this fire? Uh, Well, uh, just kind of numb. And, uh, you know, it's it's slowly sinking in. It's, I guess it's almost like losing a member of the family. Hmm. Yeah, and it's, uh, yeah, it's this been such just a part happened. of our family for so long, and it's been you know just a pe- a piece of the Minnesota community for so long. It's just a little hard to let it sink in. 
Absolutely. And we so appreciate your time this afternoon. Scott, can you tell us a bit why it is so much like family to everybody in that area and just kind of what it means to your communities? Well, let me start with uh, it was a privilege for us to have the Nelson Mm. family reach out uh, to us and uh, engage in negotiations to buy it. And we put a group of investors together from Duluth. Uh, As you say, we bought that in the 19. Uh, 88, mm-hmm. oldest resort in Minnesota. So it was a privilege for us to honor its tradition and hopefully enhance what was available to people up there, both programmatically and developmentally. So um, we managed it in a real familial style. So one of the things that I'll miss most, and I'm sure Nance does as well, is our relationship with all the the, the key employees up there. Yeah, it's incredible uh, it how... just a real... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Just, just a, tr- just a tremendous heartache for us. Absolutely, it's incredible how I was going to say a, a piece of architecture, a building can can mean so much in people's lives and and produce so many memories. Scott, will you tell us a little bit about this architecture, this historic building? <clears throat> well, as you may know, uh, the old lodge burned down in 1949, mm-hmm. and uh, Ed Lundy was hired by the Nelson family to design this, and it was then built to his specifications. And a lot of the woodworking and the carpentry and the artisanry uh, was from local people up here. So that was built in 1949. Uh, It was in place for about a year. It burned again in 1951. So what you see, what, what you saw yesterday, was 1952 construction. Swedish architect Ed Lundy, the Nelson family, found him down in Northfield and had him uh, design this very, very classic Swedish style. Yes, just beautiful and and a a major loss. Scott, uh, how did it feel to sort of be, you know, in that space? Uh, Can you share maybe a favorite memory or just, I know there's weddings there. There's so many memories associated with it. Do you you have a favorite memory? Well, uh, (laughs) many of them. But I, I think that our principal mission uh, was to create good memories for the guests there. Mm. But the best feeling that we got was people being outdoors, enjoying themselves, winter, summer, spring, fall, and and staying at our resort, but taking advantage of all the activities we provided and staying with us and eating with us. So many of them, but uh, we'll miss most not only the guests, but the key people that helped run that for us and with us. One of, one of the things that that I think about is, is just the generational um, visits. Mm-hmm. People who talk who would come and say, oh, my, I just first started coming here with my grandparents, or oh, my parents were married here. Oh, it's just such an incredible web um, across the state of people who have worked at the resort, um, played at the resort, um, started relationships and friendships at the resort. And um, this morning, um, this just made me smile this morning. I was driving my four-year-old granddaughter uh, to uh, school, and she that family is coming up this weekend to do a little skiing. And mm-hmm. she, out of the blue, said to me, um, we can go to the game room, right? <laughs> and Lutzen, Lutzen's had this game room that for just generations, kids leave the dining room table with quarters in their hand and go play games. And I just think that 
that is just a classic how generationally the experience is passed down. Yeah, that's a great story. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, you know, you had mentioned, Scott, that there were two fires, uh, 1949, 1951, obviously then been a really long time since uh, something like this had happened. I know it's really too soon to tell, but do you hope that there will be some sort of a rebuilding of that space? Well, uh, we are hopeful, <clears throat> uh, but we're not we're not um, in a contractual or ownership position right. to know what's going to go on. We, we are certainly hopeful that that it is reconstituted in a compelling way and honors the the history and traditions that were created there long before we got here. Absolutely. And and Nancy, I wondered if you would want to share just any any thoughts with people who are, you know, also grieving this loss right now. Anything you just want to say? Well, I've I have been so touched this morning by the number of people that have reached out um from from our past and our present um family, friends, um, people who have stayed there, people who worked there years ago, um, owners of condos and townhomes um, that we've had relationships with many years as we manage their properties. It's just, it's just been very heartwarming and touching um, to experience that wide reaching out from, from across the state. Yeah, it's touched so many lives. Scott, what about you? What would you like to say to, to all the people reaching out and feeling this loss right now? Um, <clears throat> however it's reconstituted, I hope that they come back up and uh, continue to enjoy it uh, as we have and as um, many, many people have in the past. So I, I hope they continue to come up, visit the North Shore and stop in at whatever happens at Lutzen Resort. All right. Well, we'll let you go. Nancy Burns and Scott Harrison, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. And I'm so sorry again for your loss and for that area. Nancy Burns and Scott Harrison owned Lutzen Lodge for 30 years. Thanks again to you both. Heading again to the North Shore for our Minnesota Music Minute, this is the song Lutzen by Dead Man Winter. The band is led by Dave Simonette, one of the founding members of Duluth's Trampled by Turtles. Minnesota Now, I'm Nina Moyni filling in for Kathy Werzer. It's been about two months since the FDA approved two new gene therapies for sickle cell. The treatment could be a cure for more than 1,500 Minnesotans with sickle cell disease and millions of people worldwide. The genetic blood condition causes horrible pain and can lead to deadly health complications like stroke. 
people of African descent are more likely to have the gene, and the new treatments could address an urgent health equity problem. But with a price tag of millions of dollars, it's unclear how or when they'll reach people who need them. So joining me to explain is Ray Blaylark, a president and CEO of the Sickle Cell Foundation of Minnesota, and Dr. Roy Cow, an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Minnesota who specializes in gene therapy for sickle cell. Thank you both for making time for us this afternoon. Thank you for having Thanks us. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. Ray, I'd like to start with you. I know you have your own uh, family history around this, and you really saw a need and, and uh, created the Sickle Cell Foundation of Minnesota. What is the reaction that you've been hearing from patients about this treatment? Well, it's a mixed reaction. You know, it's a it's certainly an excitement um, because it, this disease was identified more than 100 years ago, and there are mm. very limited treatment options. So, you know, something like this, is 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 really the the idea that we could transform the lives of individuals whose lives have been impacted by this genetic blood disorder. Absolutely, and and then uh, you know on the flip side, there, what have you heard from insurance providers? Yeah, the concern, you know, that, you know, we can build it, but how will they get there? Um, I'm hearing that from all sides. I'm hearing that from both the, the pharmaceutical industry as well as the community and, in fact, the clinical spaces as well. So communities and individuals in those communities who are impacted by sickle cell disease who are interested in seeking out a curative therapy are very concerned because many understand, you know, the challenges that come with insurance and the hoops that you have to jump through. Mm. So the the concern is it's here. How do we get to it? How do we ensure that there's affordability, that there's a pathway to making what was once a dream now a reality? And doctor, you're involved in the trials for these treatments. Uh, how, How effective are they and why are they so expensive? Yeah, I think in order to answer that second question, you have to go back and understand um, how sickle cell disease really, and just going off of what, I'm, I'm super happy that Ray is here, but going off of what Ray was saying, you know, this is a genetic disease that mm-hmm. can, it, that contributes to a lifetime of suffering for these patients um, with sickle cell disease. It, it, it's the estimated medical cost for a lifetime for these patients is about a, a 1.6 to one, like $2.0 million. Wow. Um, and so if we, can, if we can improve the lives of these patients, we could potentially not just save that money, but allow for these patients to um, to live fuller and healthier and more productive lives. So, you know, that, that 1.5 to $2 million, it doesn't include um, all the time that they're missing from work. Um, it doesn't include lost productivity. It doesn't include lost time with family. It doesn't mm. include uh, lost time feeling like a normal person. So I think that's the important context to know. Yeah. Um, what makes this really transformative uh, and potentially curative for people is that in the clinical trials uh, of which we were um, a participating site, um, it was shown to decrease um, these uh, episodes, these attacks, um, vasoclusive episodes uh, in about 95% of patients. Wow. You know, that's, that's, um, that's certainly transformative. It's certainly so much better than anything else we have right now. Um, so, you know, this is an exciting time for us, but it's, you know, it, just like just like Ray is saying, you know, this is tempered um, by um, the big question of how we're all going to get this paid for. 
Yeah. And what does it maybe typically take for the cost of a drug to, to go down or what would it take? Oh, that's a great question that I have no, uh, <laughs> no, no qualifications well, to answer. What do you think, Ray? You know, from my understanding, you know, bringing a drug to market is a quite expensive process. The mm -hmm. research that goes into it, you know, requires a, a lot of dollars on the front end. It requires dollars that are invested into, um, you know, the pathway to get the end results. Um, there's a number of steps. So we recognize that it is, takes millions and millions of dollars to bring a, a, a drug to market, let alone a cellular therapy that is um, fundamentally, you know, very new from a scientific perspective or or newer uh, in the medical space. So the the cost is is really about making sure that it's done well, it's making sure that it's done in environments that um, are conducive to the needs of the patient, that have uh, expert physicians and specialists that are able to care for the patient, not just during that process, but even after that uh, the, the therapy has been administered. Um, what are the needs that happen both in the hospital as well as outside of the hospital? Going back and forth to a hospital during a treatment like this can be quite cumbersome, but it also takes up the time, the energy, and the space of, of institutions as well as uh, families. So when we look at a, a, a new therapy that has hit the market, and certainly, again, something like cellular therapy, we're talking about a revolutionary medicine. The cost of revolutionary medicine is not cheap. Mm -hmm. However, the cost of caring for a condition like sickle cell disease, as you heard from Dr. Cow, mm -hmm. is not cheap either. So we have to place the importance and the priority upon human lives and how do we improve their lives? How do we change the trajectory of their quality of life by investing in this in this um, medical phenomena? And I just hear it in your voice, Ray, that you've been such a trailblazer, too, in trying to make sure that people do get the, the therapies that they need. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, without these therapies, what treatment for sickle cell typically looks like? And if you wanted to share, you know, what it was like for you and your son and, and kind of what brought you to this point? Yes, I'm glad that you brought that up. I have a 27-year-old son that lives with sickle cell disease, mm -hmm. and he started um, his complications of sickle cell disease at four months old. That was how old he was when mm -hmm. he when I first watched it fentanyl drip into his veins. That was devastating for me. That was mm -hmm. the beginning of um, a new normal that I never expected. So watching him go in and out of the hospital, watching him miss exorbitant amounts of, of school and academics, watching him lose jobs mm. as a teenager and even now as an adult, you know, having to defend, um, you know, the, what his body is going through and his need for medical attention in order to keep his job. Um, this is change. This is quite the change. Uh, prior to, you know, options like this, all that you had was a medication that was um, not created for us, though they found it to be able to be used with us called hydroxyurea. Mm. It was originally um, meant for leukemia. It was originally meant as for another condition. However, um, using it in sickle cell disease, has it's a chemotherapy, so it requires monitoring. It requires going to the clinic and the hospital consistently um, throughout the entire time that you're on it. Um, but it's not for everyone. It's not a one-time fix-all. Mm. It's not 
um, accessible by everyone. It's not tolerated by everyone. So that's just one. But the other really big issue is that we are in the midst of an opioid overdose crisis. For those who are in the pain community, not just sickle cell disease, but definitely those individuals who are suffering from sickle cell disease, being able to get your pain treated has become much, much, much more difficult. Hmm. And the ability to um, be, be treated both respectfully but also believed in the intensity of the pain mm-hmm. has made it very difficult and has actually um, created even more complications for individuals living with this disease. And right. when there's more complications, now you have increased mortality. And that's what we don't want to see. Absolutely. The American Society of Hematology says sickle cell is the most common genetic blood disorder and black people are more likely to carry the gene. And, you know, you spoke about it a little bit there, Ray, of how racial bias has affected the treatment. Uh, Dr. Gao, is the you doing anything to make sure doctors and doctors in training don't perpetuate this bias? Yeah, certainly. I think um, what we're really doing here at the University of Minnesota um, with Dr. Boucher, Dr. Ashish Gupta, and, and many others, especially working with Ray Blaylark, um, is to help educate the next generation of healthcare personnel about sickle cell disease and how this is a horrible disease that um, uh, we, not just the pathophysiology for which we have a long track record of research here, um, but also the clinical care and also the, the fundamental impact of race on the patient experience, um, inside and outside the healthcare setting. So these are the things that we wanna um, help new doctors, new nurses, um, new healthcare providers understand. And Mm -hmm. in addition to this, it's really working together with all the blood specialists around the state and in a few extra uh, states as well to really build that that capacity and help educate that um, our, our community. And Ray, I'd like to uh, leave the last word with you here of just anything else that you think is just um, incredibly needed right now to kind of get sickle cell treatment to where it needs to be. What would you what would your message be? You know, I think that it's interesting that sickle cell disease was the um, first molecular disease identified uh, in the medical records here in the U.S. And here we are at a crossroads. We have an opportunity to now um, sickle cell disease being one of the very first um, conditions that molecular conditions that can be addressed through cellular therapy like gene therapy. This is monumental. This is an opportunity to change the trajectory of Mm -hmm. not just a person's life, but a community's life. To have one in 13 individuals identified with sickle cell trait, that means that when you are in your own community, being able to um, uh, to, fam- to have family planning, being able to determine who are the individuals who you could um, have children with and build a family with, has been challenging. Mm-hmm. And so we want to change this. It is the most Uh, common genetic blood disorder in the entire world. Here in Minnesota, we have an opportunity to change the trajectory for Minnesotans who are impacted by this disease. So whether you're a patient, whether you're a caregiver like myself, whether you are a family member, whether you're a neighbor, or whether you are a medical provider, Mm -hmm. we all play a role in, in making sure that we have access to medicines that are transformative in nature and 
Oh, I think I lost you there, Ray. Uh, but thank you both so much. Uh, we'll leave it there, and we do appreciate your time. Ray Blaylark, President and CEO of the Sickle Cell Foundation of Minnesota, and Dr. Roy Kao, Assistant Professor of Medicine at the University of Minnesota. Thank you both for your time. Thanks for Thank you us. so Thanks. much. Programming is supported by Tuscarora Lodge and Canoe Outfitters, specializing in boundary waters, wilderness adventures, and cabins along the Gunflint Trail. Now booking summer canoe trips and cabin rentals. More information at TuscaroraCanoe.com. Time now for a News Headlines update with Emily Reese. Emily? Hi, Nina. A federal appeals court panel has ruled Donald Trump can face trial on charges he plotted to overturn the results of the 2020 election. The court rejected Trump's claims that he's immune from prosecution as a former president. It's the second time judges have said he can be prosecuted for actions undertaken while in the White House and in the run-up to the January 6, 2021 Capitol riot. The court's decision sets the stage for additional appeals from Trump to either the U.S. Supreme Court or the entire U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is pressing ahead with a diplomatic tour of the Middle East. Blinken is meeting Egyptian and Qatari leaders as part of his efforts to secure a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war in exchange for the release of hostages. And Yemen Houthi rebels continue attacking cargo ships and shipping lanes in protest over Israel's war on Hamas in Gaza. Today, two ships were attacked by suspected Yemen Houthi rebel drones. Britain's Prime Minister Rishi Sunak says that King Charles III's cancer was caught early and the monarch will crack on with his constitutional duties. The remarks came as Prince Harry flew in from California today to visit his father. Royal officials announced yesterday the 75-year-old king has been diagnosed with an undisclosed form of cancer and is receiving treatment as an outpatient. King Charles suspended public engagements but will continue with state business. Honda is recalling more than 750,000 vehicles in the U.S. because a faulty sensor may cause the front passenger airbags to inflate when they're not supposed to. The recall covers much of the Honda and Acura model lineup from 2020 to 2022. Documents posted today by the U.S. National Highway Traffic Safety Administration say the front passenger seat weight sensor can break and fail to disable the airbag as intended. The sensors are required to turn off airbags if children or small adults are in the seats. Nina? Thanks, Emily. You're welcome. So we know this winter has been anything but normal. Our snowiest month so far has been October, and we're seeing 50-degree weather now in February. So for lifelong Minnesotans or people who grew up here, might be seeing this winter as a nice break, or maybe you're desperate for some snow, but we were curious what it's like for a transplant. So Aubrey Regner moved from Florida all the way to Minnesota this past year, and we wanted to know how it's going. And so, Aubrey, you are joining us now. You have been chronicling your move on TikTok. We are slowly getting ready for our move out of Florida. No winter's a long time away, but we have no winter clothes. But I finally have my first official winter wear jacket, and it's perfect for layering, and I'm obviously going to need 500 more layers. And so for starters, before you moved to Minnesota, Aubrey, uh, what was your impression about winter in this state? 
So I just expected a fully frozen tundra, like everything just frozen <laughs> for a really long time. I didn't know a lot about the Midwest or Minnesota at all. We actually had visited last year on the first day of spring when things were kind of like melting. There was a whole celebration in the airport about it, <laughs> oh, <laughs> which my was gosh. really funny. <laughs> um, but I was expecting like to be very, very cold, stay inside for a lot of time. And clearly that is the opposite has happened. Yeah. And so what brought you to Minnesota, I wonder? Um, there, there were a lot of reasons. We were just looking for a complete change of pace. Um, our careers were going to be a better fit out here. It's a good place to raise a family. Access to a lot of local activities and events is really what we were looking for. And so what did people tell you to expect when you were moving to Minnesota? Uh, the absolute worst. The, <laughs> I, was, I was told to expect the absolute worst. It's going to be frozen most of the year. Like it's miserable, all these kinds of things. And so I was preparing for it, but I'm still waiting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and you know, those are all accurate uh, depictions that people gave you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to be I, honest. I have no doubt. I have no doubt that that's it is actually pretty bad. And I know it was pretty bad last year from I've been told many times. Um, so I mean, <laughs> you guys deserve a nice break and I'm enjoying it. So I guess we'll try again next year. <laughs> and winter is not over yet. Uh, so you have your TikTok videos where you sort of talk about buying winter gear. And what did you do to prepare before you got here? I know I always tell people get a really good pair of snow boots. Yes. Yeah, so I was given a lot of really great advice after I got here. Um, right before we moved, I realized I didn't even own a jacket. I <laughs> lived in warm climates for the last 10 years. So I was like, I need a jacket to start. Um, and we kind of just went from there. I was given um, snow boots was a really big recommendation. And then a coat that goes below the knees. That was like the, uh, the golden advice. So I do have a couple of those now. Yeah. And so what have you been um, putting on to go outside? I'm just curious because I lived in Florida for a couple of years in southwest Florida, and even 50 degrees at that point starts to feel really cold. <laughs> so I'm curious how it, you bundle up right now. Yeah, it really does. It, it's different down there, <laughs> I will say. Yeah. With the current weather we're having, I'm going out in like a sweatshirt. I'm not really pulling out the jackets. I think I've acclimated pretty well. So, I mean, are you disappointed? Are you like, oh my gosh, thank goodness? Or is there anything you were really looking forward to trying out like winter sports wise here in Minnesota? I would say I'm a little bit disappointed. Um, my husband and I really just wanted to experience that snowfall together um, and it, build a snowman. That was like number one on the list, experience those snow activities and we just really haven't gotten to dive into that at all. So we're just going to table it for next year, I think. Well, and luckily there's a lot to do uh, in the summer here too. And just like just so many beautiful outdoor things to do in general in Minnesota. So I think I think you're both going to really like it here. Uh, what have been some of the reactions that you've been getting from your TikTok followers when you've been talking about this? Um, they're all shocked. Um, I don't think anybody was expecting this. They all, I got here in June, so they were preparing me for the worst. Yeah. And then that, Hallow <laughs> that Halloween snowfall came and I'm like, okay, this is it. This is when the snow is going to stick around and it's just going to be crazy. And then that just didn't happen. So I think we're all just kind of like, oh, well, <laughs> we don't know what's happening. Yeah. Were you surprised that there's so much 
interest in this topic? I mean, Minnesotans love to talk about outside and the cold and the weather. I was shocked. Absolutely shocked. (laughs) I've lived in a lot of different places and I love how much interest there is in regards to, you know, the world around us here in the Twin Cities because it's exactly what I was looking for. And so I, I was shocked, but in the best way possible. Well, Aubrey, we look forward to kind of following the rest of your journey here. And like I said, it's not too late. You still might get your wish for some snowfall. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope so. <laughs> Thanks, Aubrey. Thank you. Aubrey Regner is a digital content creator. You can find her at Only Obs on TikTok. That's A-U-B-S-S. Programming supported by Carlson Capital Management, an integrated wealth management firm with one key responsibility, serving as financial stewards, helping clients use their wealth to accomplish their goals. Employee-owned and Minnesota-based. Connect with a fiduciary advisor at carlsoncap.com. What does it mean to live a life with purpose? It's a big question that one Minnesota author wants to help you answer. Richard Lader has written 11 books, including his most recent titled, Who do you want to be when you grow old? The Path of Purposeful Aging. He's giving a talk tonight at St. Catherine University on the power of purpose. And he joins me now. Mr. Leiter, I apologize. Thank you for being here. Well, Nina, thank you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I mean, I ask myself this every day. (laughs) What is my purpose? (laughs) Um, You know, who do you want to be when you grow old? It's sort of a a play on um, what do you want to be when you grow old? That's the title of the book. And it seems to imply that we shouldn't just be thinking about, you know, growing up in terms of a young child or, or, you know, our careers. Uh, What do you think about that title? What was your thought there? Well, you're exactly right. It is a play on what did you want to do when you grew (laughs) up? But now that you're growing up, what do you want? Who do you want to be in the next phases of your life? And you know, we've added three decades to life, so life is a lot longer. And so, uh, answering the question about uh, uh, who do you want to be when you grow old is, uh, you know, not a luxury anymore. It's fundamental. Hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, finding purpose, it's kind of a word that gets, you know, thrown around a lot and it's so daunting. So how do you approach that concept? Well, I talk about it with a big P and a little P Hmm. in purpose. Kind of the big P purpose is the daunting one. You know, I should have a cause, I should save the planet, or I should do something really awesome. And that's okay. Hmm. And that's uh, relevant for people. But the little P purpose is what do I do this morning. You know, purpose is basically why. Why do I get up in the morning? Why do I arise? And why do I rise in the morning? And so uh, every day there are 1,440 purpose moments, minutes, (laughs) when you can make a difference in that minute uh, in someone's life. So the little P purpose is the everyday purpose. And often when I talk about big P, little P, I get a Oh, sigh, because people say, well, thank, thankfully, I can do the little P, but the big P I'm still working on. Yeah, I often wake up and I do think, who do I want to be today instead of what do I want to do today? Because who you show up as is sort of what you do have control over, right? So I am right. curious uh, why you focus on people later in life. What brought you to that uh, group of people? Well, I've been exploring purpose uh, for over five decades hmm. And as I've lived my own life over that time and looked at, you know, purpose is basically age agnostic. There mm-hmm. are many, as many people, younger people, as midlife people, as older people. And I've written about all of them, 
over time. But uh, as we've lived longer now and uh, are growing older, um, you know, everybody's getting older, but are they growing older? Because what we need to do is to have a reason to get up in the morning as we, you know, in our second half of, of life in certain ways. And so I would say this in a simple way. The core purpose is only two words, to grow and give. Hmm. And so the question is, how am I growing and giving throughout my life? And I often ask people, Nina, to take a post-it out and write grow and give on the post-it and put that on your mirror and ask yourself tomorrow morning, how am I going to grow and give today? And how am I going to, and that night before you go to sleep, how did I grow and give today? And over time, like even five days trying it every day, there will be a felt sense. Purpose is fulfilling. It feels good to make the, a difference in the lives of others because giving or serving is its all, purpose is always beyond the self ultimately. I think that's beautiful. I'm going to give that a try. Um, why do you think people don't think as much about their lives uh, past retirement? Sometimes it seems hard to even picture. Well, it's true. There's a kind of an old model. It's like the three stages of life, Mm. learn, earn, retire. Well, now uh, it's learn, earn, and learn, and earn, and keep learning (laughs) learning throughout a lifetime. (laughs) And so as people are living longer, and they're, you know, uh, I say for retirees or anybody, there's money, there's uh, three M's. There's money, there's medicine, and there's meaning. Mm. And we all know people who have enough money, and perhaps medicine meaning health, but are not feeling so great about retirement. They may be feeling isolated or alone or bored or a lot of different things, or they may be very happy in retirement. But we know people also who have meaning and not don't have enough health or don't have enough uh, money. And so meaning is the essential third M that comes with retirement, but it comes at any stage of life, but even more so as we age. Yeah, and you something you mentioned is the U-curve of happiness. Can you explain that? Well, there used to be midlife crisis, <laughs> and the U-curve of happiness is, is where, if you look, look at the arc of life, in midlife, there's a dip. It's usually about 45 to 55 or 60. There's a dip where there's a lot of pressures on us for, with uh, mm. work and finance and health and tra- transitions, and that tends to be the most unhappy time of life is that midlife period or the most stressful, if you will. But then the new evidence is that we, as we go into the next phase of, of life, that can be the happiest time of our life. The old models of aging were all about deficit or decline. Hmm. The new models of aging that are now research-based are that, that there's an, an uptick, possibly, if we continue to grow and give in certain ways. I know I did a PBS special, and I got a chance to interview a lot of neurologists and neuroscientists. Mm. And one of them, one of them uh, held up a pill. His name is Dr. Majid Fatui at Johns Hopkins. And he held up a pill, Nina, and he said, would you buy this pill? And I said, yeah, well, what does it do? And he said, well, it'll reduce the effects of, of Alzheimer's and dementia. It'll reduce the effects of of macroscopic stroke by 41% will help with sleep and sleep apnea and add seven to 10 years of your life. And I said, well, yeah, of course, but is there such a pill and what would it cost? And he said, it's free. It's what you write about. It's purpose. We now can measure purpose in the brain. So it's not just about 
eating eating well and and all of the other things things that are essential as we age it's also about the uh, a pro aging mindset with a pro aging mindset we can add 7 to 10 years to our lives as opposed to the old model was anti aging and a decline and something to be avoided now many people are really engaged and that's why we wrote the book how do we stay engaged how do we wake up on purpose and really uh, rise in the morning with with that pro-aging mindset. It's so important. And we've just about a minute left. And I wonder, you know, when you find people who are stuck in finding their purpose, uh, what advice do you give them? What are some tips? You mentioned the post-it note. Any other tips? Well, I call it mind over mattress, the mm-hmm. two-minute practice when <laughs> you wake up in the morning. First thing, three steps. First thing, don't turn on technology. Mm-hmm. Don't reach for your phone. Second, take three deep breaths to center yourself. And third, ask yourself, uh, what's your intention for the day? How can I make a difference in someone's life this day and make an intentional commitment to do that? So the post-it challenge I gave was one practice. The mind over mattress or two-minute purpose practice is another one. All great. So, you know, I like, to, make, I like to, to think about making a difference in just one person's life of the 1,440 minutes in a day each day. And with that comes a felt sense of fulfillment. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time, Richard. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Nina. Richard Leiter is a Minneapolis author focused on finding purpose in life. Tickets are still available for his talk tonight at St. Catherine University at 6 p.m. Programming is supported by Great River Energy, a not-for-profit wholesale electric power cooperative providing 27 Minnesota member co-ops with reliable, affordable, and cleaner electricity. More at greatriverenergy.com. Well, believe it or not, Valentine's Day is around the corner, and there's a new goth rom-com opening in theaters Friday. It comes from writer Diablo Cody, who is also known for the Oscar-winning movie Juno, which she wrote while living in Minnesota. More recently, she won a Tony for her Broadway adaptation of Alanis Morissette's album Jagged Little Pill. Diablo Cody is the pen name of Brooke Mario. She's originally from Chicago, but her time in Minnesota shows in her work again and again. Not only Juno, but her 2009 horror comedy, Jennifer's Body, and the 2011 film, Young Adult, are set in the state. Her latest movie is called Lisa Frankenstein. Let's hear a clip. Oh, Lisa. Did you smash the mirror in the bathroom? Last night, I uh, told you. Your dad wanted to give you the benefit of the doubt, but I knew. I always know. I'm an IP, intuitive person. Took a whole seminar about it. Janet. There was a damn tornado last night. Hail damage on the sedan, yard full of debris, and now I guess I gotta clean up the bathroom too. It was a tornado watch, Mom, not a real tornado. Well, now, it was quite a storm though, Taff. You see that ball lightning? Big green ball in the sky? Never saw anything like that. Dale, you need to stop munching the grape nuts and be a father right now. (laughs) And Diablo Cody joins me now. Thank you so much for being here. 
Thank you for having me. This is awesome. It is awesome. I, You know what's awesome is I got to watch a, an advanced copy of the movie last night, and I really enjoyed it. I remember that scene. I have to ask, uh, Lisa Frankenstein was filmed in New Orleans, but is it set in Minnesota? I kind of felt the vibes. <laughs> so I got to be honest with you. It is set in the Midwest. <laughs> okay. Technically, technic- as much as I would love to say that it's set in Minnesota, it's technically set where I grew up in Illinois. That's but, okay. You know, you can kind of tell <laughs> watching the movie if that it's was filmed in New Orleans because it's hard to hide. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's really beautiful um, in watching it, the clothing and everything. Uh, can you give folks Thank a you. preview of just kind of what was going on in that scene we just heard? So in that movie... Um, Lisa is uh, it's it's her step her new stepmother is mm-hmm. accusing her of having trashed the house to get attention uh, and is accusing her of being sort of emotionally unstable and acting out when in reality the reason the house is trashed is because the night before an undead corpse broke in <laughs> and <laughs> trashed the place <laughs> wait if I have this if I have the timeline correctly anyway mm-hmm. um, that's that's yeah this is basically a kind of a romantic comedy about a living girl and a dead guy. Yeah. And you know what's so interesting? Uh, Mary Shelley was just 19 when she wrote the novel Frankenstein. So it's fitting that this story is also centered around this teenage girl. Um, Had you read Frankenstein when you got the idea for this film? Yeah, definitely. And I was also very interested on a meta level in the story of Mary Shelley Hmm. and uh, the origin of that novel and how it was kind of a contest And I don't think anyone was expecting this 19-year-old woman to write the greatest gothic novel of all time. Hmm. Uh, And so, yeah, she was definitely an inspiration for me. And so um, in this movie, I don't want to give too much away, but Lisa is really going through some truly nightmarish times in her life. Uh, Were you trying to say something about dealing with grief throughout this film? That's exactly what I was trying to say, because, you know, I feel like In other eras, such as the Victorian era, people had rituals in place to deal with grief. And in today, we live in such an accelerated culture that just wants to sell us things and just wants us to move on. And in this movie, this this girl who's who's grieving her mother gets to literally embrace death in the form of this Hmm. man who rises from the grave. And so when people are watching, uh, what do you hope they take away? I hope... First of all, I hope people get a warm sense of nostalgia because this movie is really a love letter to the 80s when (laughs) I grew up. And I also hope that they feel like it's okay to be emotional. It's okay to miss people. It's okay to feel things deeply and be goth, so to speak, because that's what we were made to do. Yeah, the big hair, big sleeves, uh, big prints. I loved all of it. Um, I also heard that this is the first feature film directed by Zelda Williams, the daughter of Robin Williams. What was it like to work together? I mean, I just adore Zelda, and I can't believe that it's her first film. Uh, I never got that feeling from her because I've been doing this a long time. Hmm. And, you know, I expected her to be kind of unsure and, you know, learning on the job. And that was not the vibe at all. And I think some of that does come from the fact that she grew up on sets um, but she's an, she's just a really confident filmmaker and she had such a specific vision for this movie and I ate it up. I, I love what she did with it. And uh, I was reading about one of your other movies that there might be a remake of Jennifer's Body. Is that true? I wouldn't call it a remake. Okay. I don't think I would remake that movie, but I definitely want to do something else in that world, whether it's a sequel, a TV show, a musical, something, because I I really don't feel like I got a chance to do everything I wanted to do 
in, in the world of Jennifer's body. Like, I feel like there's a universe there. Sure. Um, and that one was set in Minnesota, right? If I'm correct. <laughs> oh, yeah. Devil's Cattle, Minnesota, for sure. Yeah, we're always bringing it back to Minnesota here on Minnesota <laughs> now. <laughs> I love um, Minnesota. What is it that you like so much about making movies that are sort of horror comedies? You know, I think in a in a weird way, even though it's kind of a crazy, you know, gonzo genre, it feels true to life because life is both horrifying and funny. And being able to get those two reactions out of an audience, you know, the the fear, the shock, and then also laughter. Um, as a writer, that's very gratifying to to get to experience those visceral reactions. Yeah, like I'm watching it and I'm like, I'm I feel like I'm straddling a rope or something. Like I'm like, oh, but oh, that's funny. So I mean, is <laughs> do you like to kind of make people not uncomfortable in a bad way, but just to kind of that discomfort? I do like that. <laughs> I feel like that's I mean, it maybe it's a little bit manipulative, but it's it's no. so enjoyable as an art. It's so enjoyable to be a provocateur as an artist. It's the best. Yeah, I think what that does is it challenges us to sort of challenge ourselves and our own uh, perceptions of of what's around us. Um, So when you were in Minnesota, bringing it back again, uh, what do you remember most from your time here? Oh, gosh, you know what? Feeling embraced by a community of artists and writers. That's the thing that I'm most grateful for, because you know, live, I lived in Chicago before I came to Minneapolis. And I I love Chicago, do not get me wrong. That's like my hometown. But I never felt confident as an artist. And I never really found my people in terms of, you know, what I wanted to do with my life. And then when I came to Minnesota, I just found there's something in the lakes. <laughs> I don't know what it is in, in the Twin Cities that really um, produces these great kind of offbeat artists. And I I felt like I had found a place where I could spread my wings and where I belonged. Yeah. And so I I heard that the premiere again is this Friday. Uh, What's your plan for that? What's that going to look like? Where is it going to be? Well, the the movie's opening this Friday. Okay. Um, but we had the little party last night where okay. we did the red carpet and all that stuff, oh, fun. and that was that was super fun. I know. I'm like, I'm tired. I brought my children, so it was kind of <laughs> it was kind of a job, but um, you know how it is. But uh, this Friday, I'm really excited for it to open up. I'm going to go around and surprise some theaters, which I love to do, and talk to people and. So it'll be cool. That's wonderful. So one last question for you. If you could meet, this is kind of a fun one. If you could meet Mary Shelley, what would you ask her? Oh, my goodness. I would I would ask her what people keep asking me, hmm. which is why do you think that the Frankenstein legend has, has been done so many times in so many films and so many books? Like, what was it about what she created that resonated with people and over what's generations? what's your answer, I wonder? I keep saying that the idea of creating life is just kind of is always going to be irresistible to people, the Mm. idea of playing God like that. (laughs) Um, But I'd like to know what what she would say. Yeah. This was a lot of fun, Diablo Cody. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is a great talk. Thank you. Diablo Cody is a writer and film producer. Her movie, Lisa Frankenstein, is out Friday. 
Thanks again so much for tuning in to Minnesota Now. I'm Nina Moynihan for Kathy Werzer. By the way, NPR's winter member drive starts next week, but don't wait. We need your help to start the drive strong. Donate early today and you can help us raise $575,000 in just five days. And when you donate, pick up your year-round Minnesota State Parks vehicle permit. It's available right now as an early thank you gift. Support the news and political coverage that you and your neighbors rely on and help kickstart the winter member drive. Start your monthly gift now at nprnews.org. We have another project ahead called Talking Sense, a reporting project aimed at helping people have hard conversations better. Check out the new app we've created, debuting today over at nprnews.org slash Talking Sense. And we want to hear from you. How has politics and disinformation affected your relationships? Support comes from Comcast Business, working to provide small businesses with protection from big cyber threats with the help of advanced security from Comcast Business. Restrictions apply. Requires Comcast Business Internet, leased router, and security edge. You're listening to NPR News 91.1 FM KNOW, Minneapolis, St. Paul. We are member-supported public radio. It's partly sunny right now in the Twin Cities. 49 degrees might hit 50 today. Rest of the day looks like highs will be in the low 50s tomorrow for your Wednesday. Again, highs in the mid-50s. Wow, Wednesday night is a chance for some rain showers in the evening and then after midnight, Lows will be in the mid-40s. Thursday is looking breezy with rain showers expected in the morning and in the afternoon. Highs will still continue to be, though, in the low 50s for this unseasonably warm winter we've had. It's 1 o'clock.